Well, this has been quite a week of transition for our community, for our chapel team, for those of you that have made the journey with us from Estes to McKenna Chapel. Uh, for months now, we've been preparing for a big move, and this week, the time finally came. And as we were busily setting up space for worship here in McKenna Chapel, as we were creating what I would call a outpost for operations over here, this will be our home for the next several months until we return to Estes Chapel sometime in the spring. Meanwhile, back in Estes, the renovations have already begun. Uh, this picture was actually taken yesterday afternoon. If you walk by today, almost all the pews are gone. And let me just tell you, as one who offices next to that room, the noise level is high. <laughs> and the dust is swirling. And, and there's the chaos of taking out our beloved pews, which will be sent for refurbishing and which will return to us as good as new. This is now underway. And just as a side note, if you've ever sat in one of the pews that needs refurbishing the most, <laughs> see, you already know what I'm going to say. It's not just cosmetic, the need. There are cracks down the center of some of them. And sometimes when you sit, you get pinched. So those of you that sit in that pew will be glad when they are refinished and sealed and return to us a new creation. And watching the beauty of the physical setting of this chapel, of McKenna Chapel, come together, while watching the pieces of Estes Chapel come apart, has been an interesting experience for me. I, I don't think I was prepared for the strong feelings I would feel each time I walk past that door. I have to admit, feeling a bit of sadness to see the space in, in disarray. I mean, this is holy ground for me, for us. And, and it's been our job for so long to make sure everything is perfect in that room. And so to watch it come apart all the fixtures we've worked hard to preserve, the carpet and the pews and the paint torn asunder, I have to keep reminding myself that it is actually like the work that's gone on here, that it is preparing a place, and that that too, the, the chaos and Estes, is a work of renewal. It's just renewal at its earliest stages, and the earliest stages are chaos. A creation is born out of chaos. It's been so from the beginning. We're reminded of this fact every time we open our Bibles to the first page and read these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. We're told that the conditions that creation emerged from were formless, void, and dark. They were, they were formless. It was shapeless, chaotic. There was void. It was uninhabited. It was empty. And, and it was dark, which means, well, dark. <laughs> and, and in those first moments of creation, God began bringing order out of chaos, filling the emptiness, lighting the darkness. What Ross read for us this morning were the first three days of this process of creation. Those are the order out of chaos days. Days one, two, and three are, are, are the days that God turned on the lights with just a word and then began ordering all that chaos, creating environments 
separating light from darkness, waters above from waters below, separating sea from dry ground. And and with each of these separations, the chaos begins to be shaped into order. It, It opens up a breathing space. It creates environments that are being prepared to be inhabited. And the environments made in those first three days are then filled in the next three days by in meticulously the same order, sun, moon, and stars to inhabit the light and dark, fish and birds to inhabit the sky and sea, and then all kinds of creatures to crawl on dry ground, ending with humankind. These movements, these movements from from chaos to creation of of environments carefully crafted just for their particular inhabitants that will come, they always begin with setting a place. And, And I, for one, am still a little in awe of how the place, the environment of light and dark, are established before the sun and moon and stars ever fill them. Such is the meticulous message of this awesome story. It it mirrors the intricacy of the creation it describes. Chaos ordered, emptiness filled, darkness overcome by light before the sun ever begins to shine. Setting a place on the first three days of creation is a kind of divine hospitality where God readies a beautiful home before inviting in the guests to fill it. Back when I was a poor, struggling seminary student here at Asbury, I was given an opportunity to attend an evangelism conference in Florida. And and I don't remember who else spoke at the conference. I think it was a three-day conference with multiple speakers each day. I don't remember who else, but I do remember that Nikki Gumbel was among those speaking, the founder of Alpha. And, And I had been part of a church that was growing through using Alpha and learning from Nikki Gumbel's ministry was like nothing that I had ever experienced before. It was, well, it was a kind of convergence, actually. There was the deep tradition that I longed for, a rich preaching of the word, and a recognition of the power of the spirit like I had never heard anyone describe it. And so I was incredibly excited that Nikki Gumbel was coming here to the U.S. and that he was close enough for me to maybe even drive and get a chance to hear him speak in person. The trouble was I didn't have any money to attend this conference. And so they, they scholarshiped me, and I had a car, and I could drive myself to Florida. The problem was I had nowhere to stay. And somehow, through the miraculous network that is Asbury Seminary, someone connected me with a couple there that loved Asbury, that lived close by to the conference. I didn't know them, but they were incredibly kind when I arrived. And and I let them know, as a good house guest would, that I didn't want to be any trouble, that they wouldn't even know I was there for those three days, that I would get my own meals, I would take care of my own needs. They shouldn't, how do we say it, they shouldn't put themselves out. They were already doing enough providing a stranger, a bed for those nights. But my words seemed to fall on deaf ears because at every turn, this family was preparing a place for me, was taking care of my every need. The the wife in particular had this uncanny ability to anticipate my needs and provide for them when when I never stated any of them. There was cold iced tea ready for me 
When I arrived home, there was hot coffee in the morning. There were snacks, my friends. <laughs> all the right snacks. At all the times that I found myself hungry, my, my room was stocked as if prepared just for me with all of the things that made me feel right at home and, and the meals where they welcomed me to their table were filled with delightful food and fellowship. You know, some people are welcoming and then some people are welcoming. There were these little touches everywhere to let me know that they had prepared a place for me. And I, and I mentioned to the woman that I recognized this as a gift in her and that it made me wonder, had she always had this gift? How had she cultivated it? And then she shared with me a story of when they were first married. Her husband had been an only child, and his mother really didn't want him to marry. They did anyway. And eventually they went on their first trip home to visit her at his childhood home. Only the mother-in-law intentionally went out of her way not to welcome her new daughter. Everything about her home communicated that her daughter-in-law was not welcome. Not only did she not go out of her way to make a place for her, she didn't put out a second guest towel. She made her ask to find it. And when they went to sit down at the table, there were only two places set. It was quite a statement. Her husband had to go to the kitchen and, and get her all of the things she needed to eat. And so this woman said, I want everyone who comes to my house to know that they're welcome here, to know that I prepared a place for them at this table, and I want them to know the feelings that come with that. You see, out of the chaos of her broken family history, this woman had produced a gift, a thing of beauty offered to each person who entered her home. God's good creation is a kind of divine act of hospitality for us. We, we know it when we see the world he created, that he longed to make a place for us here. Indeed, you remember Jesus' words, I go to prepare a place for you. Well, it seems they describe an act that God has been doing from the very beginning, preparing a place for us. Heaven and earth are full of your glory, the liturgy proclaims. God didn't make the world out of some deficit of his own loneliness, but out of his fullness. The overflow setting places everywhere in creation. And, and when God describes the chaos from which creation came, the earth formless and void and dark, he also tells us something about his location in that chaos. Genesis 1-2 says, the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, hovering. That is a rare but beautiful word in scripture. Only two places in the Old Testament, that exact word. It's a, it's a word that speaks of a bird. A bird is what hovers. It's a word that describes brooding over a nest, a word that describes fluttering lovingly, a word of winged nurture and protection. This. Hovering, this is a word with wings and feathers. The only other place it's used is Deuteronomy 32, 11, where it says, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young. 
as a bird hovers over its nest, waiting there for what is to hatch. And, and I love this picture of what the Spirit is doing in creation over the dark, chaotic, empty nest. The Spirit is hatching, hatching creation. Chaos has always been an atmosphere that is ripe for God's work. The world, if you haven't noticed, the world is a broken, broken and chaotic place. Cracks that may have begun small have spread so widely they, they can't even be hidden anymore. Cracks that might mean breaking, that might mean splintering, that might mean shattering, but in the nest, cracks can also mean hatching. They can mean new life. What if, what if God's presence among the dark and chaotic place is one of brooding? God's spirit hovering, God's word gently assembling the pieces, holding them together. Psalm 61 says, hide me in the shelter of your wings. That sounds like a place of protection, but it could also be a place of hatching, of new creation. And in the ancient language, Syriac, this word for hovering well, they stole it. They incorporated it into their liturgy. In Syriac, this verb is one that's used for the incubation of birds on the nest. And they brought this rare word into their liturgy. They incorporated it. It was co-opted into the liturgy of the church in two places. I think they're two beautiful places. The first was this. In the waving of the hand over the cup. At Eucharist, the consecrating of the wine, this, pour out your spirit on these gifts. This is an act of expectation and hovering. And the second place it's used is in the placing of the hands on someone who's being consecrated. Namely, in their liturgy, someone who's being consecrated, bishop, this, this is an act of hovering of expectation of what will emerge from the chaos of the human soul when set apart for leadership and ministry. First, let's talk about the cup. The cup that we will celebrate with today. The hand is placed here. The hovering is during that prayer we call the epiclesis, the prayer that invokes the Holy Spirit, the holy mystery that makes this for us the real presence, the body and blood of Christ. Talk about the emerging of creation from chaos. There is no darker, no more chaotic moment in human history than the cross. And so to pray over something that symbolizes the spilling of the blood of God and to expect it to bless us, that's a miracle, friends. To hold a cup that in this holy mystery is celebrated as the blood of Christ and say, you know that dark, horrible moment? Let's bless that and turn it into blessing for all of us. When we hold our hand in hovering and blessing the cup, we're saying essentially, hatch a miracle from chaos, Lord. Hatch a miracle from the cup. If you can redeem the evil of the cross to bless the entire world, what can you not redeem? What is hopeless in the world if the cross can be transformed? And that second act, that act of liturgical hovering, the hands placed over someone at their consecration, here is a calling down of the Holy Spirit to sanctify the human heart for the purposes of ministry. 
with our understanding of the priesthood of all believers, we could say that each prayer that we pray, where we say, here is my heart, Lord, sanctify it to your purposes. Each time we offer ourselves in song and prayer, turning ourselves over to God, there, there's a moment where the Spirit hovers, where we ask God, is it possible that this chaos, that you would use it? Even this, Lord? Is it possible that you could take what is in here and use me for your purposes? If God can take the cross and use it to bless the world, what could God do with this? With this chaos? As if it weren't enough to ask God to hatch a miracle from the cup, we're asking him to hatch a miracle out of us, to sanctify us and set us apart. And I'm not sure which one seems harder to me. I mean, the cross is a difficult and dark and horrible place to try to transform, but I also know what's in me. You know what's in you. Can God take that? Surely God can take anything. And so the words that we say with bated breath during the Eucharist, the words in my own tradition in United Methodism are these, Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit on those gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. And I am always so in awe in the moment that I get to speak those words aloud that I have to give a deep pause in between them. I wonder what is God about to do? What is hatching in this room? Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Sometimes that pause can be so deep that people have Ask me if I lost my place in the middle of the liturgy. But I have not. I have found my place in the liturgy. And I am simply stepping back in a moment of expectation to say, what will the Lord do if we offer him this and this and wait to see what will emerge? Both of these acts, they happen in community. They happen when we're together. They're, they're a place not of our own power in calling down a spirit, but a place of our surrender. In today's liturgy from the Book of Common Prayer, we'll hear this. We offer you these gifts. Sanctify them by your Holy Spirit to be for your people the body and blood of your Son, the holy food and drink of new and unending life in him. And then here, sanctify us also that we may faithfully receive this holy sacrament and serve you in unity, constancy, and peace. And at the last day, bring us with all your saints into the joy of your eternal kingdom. It's breathtaking, isn't it? So we should take a breath. It should give us pause that we would ask the Spirit to transform the chaos of the cross into something that would transform our world. And then, Lord, do I even dare ask you to sanctify this. That I would be brought with all the saints into the eternal kingdom. What kind of miracle of hatching is that? One of those saints who loved the Eucharist dearly was Saint Ignatius of Antioch. On his way to martyrdom in Rome around 108 AD, Ignatius wrote seven letters to seven different churches, many of which had a strong emphasis on the Eucharist. And let me just stop and say for a minute that if I was on my way, having been arrested to be thrown to the lions, I might have some other things to say in the letters that I wrote. But he talked a lot about the Eucharist. 
He, he was most concerned that the Gnostics of the day were teaching an altered gospel, ignoring the physical and material dimensions there, ignoring that Jesus was incarnate in the flesh, that he was resurrected in the flesh after being crucified in the flesh. And this lack of embracing of humanity led them to not embrace the human needs of those around them. So as Ignatius wrote in one of his letters to the seven churches, these words, they care nothing about love. They have no concern for widows or orphans, for the oppressed, for those in prison or released, for the hungry or thirsty. They hold aloof from the Eucharist and from services of prayer because they refuse to admit that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ who suffered for our sins and which in his goodness the Father raised from the dead. In denying the flesh, the Gnostics were denying not only the sacramental realities, but the realities in the world around them, the needs, the deep needs that God was calling them to meet. This world is not our home, they said, and so they began to ignore what God called them to pay attention to. So let me ask you, is that trap still out there? Are we still tempted to ignore the physical realities and assume that Christianity is a spiritual, spiritual meaning not material sort of faith? Anyone seen any beliefs lately that say the spirit is important to God but not the flesh? That what we do in church on Sunday is an act honoring to God and acceptable to him but the other six days of the week don't? When we present our bodies as living sacrifices, as spiritual acts of worship, what more could we say about that? This, this last year, I've spent a great deal of time in conversations about human sexuality and the state of the church, specifically my own embattled denomination, the United Methodist Church. And this spring, I was in Atlanta for a gathering of United Methodist scholars who presented papers on those topics, human sexuality and the unity of the church. And after a day of presentations and questions and conversations, most of which were heated and intense. During closing remarks, one scholar rose to speak. I'd like to ask the obvious question that no one is asking, she said. Why are we all arguing about something that has nothing to do with us? What is it to me what you do in your bedroom? What is it to you what I do behind closed doors? As long as there's mutuality there, if there's consent between adults, what does it matter what you do with your body? Or what business is it of yours what I do with mine? And I will say that this was the one moment in the entire conference where no one responded. No one spoke, no one raised their hand, and that could possibly be like in some of our classes when something is said at the end of the class, no one wants to refute it because they want out of there. And she sat down, possibly feeling that she had left everyone speechless because of the wonderful point she had just made. But to me, the room had a different kind of feeling to it. Not the feeling of ones who had been taught a lesson and were speechless, but those sidelong glances of those who, who didn't really want to embarrass their colleague by responding to say something like, while this room is filled with different theological perspectives, and some of whom matched hers on this particular subject, while there were many theological perspectives there, that this was not even a Christian perspective. Because there's nothing in scripture that would indicate that God doesn't care about what we do with our bodies, even behind closed doors. That when God chooses to hover over, spiritual, over physical creation, when he hatches creation from chaos, it is no longer an option for us to believe that our bodies don't matter to God. That the physical is any less spiritual because we can see it and touch it. 
that when the creator of the world is so concerned with our life in the flesh that, that he himself becomes flesh, our bodies matter all the more. And that rather than backing down from this physical creation that he hovered over, he entered it in flesh, was crucified in flesh, and resurrected in flesh. That it's not an option to question whether our care for our own physical acts or physical needs of others matters to God. God blesses and uses the material. He inhabits the material. God sets up a place in this physical and beautiful world that is birthed from chaos. And so we can never diminish or demean or throw away the material by simply saying, this world doesn't matter. It's not my home. We cannot say that God cares any less for the physical world and we cannot throw away any brother or sister on earth believing we have no concern for their physical well-being or they ours. This, this world is a mess. It is this week, but it has been every week. The chaos is an invitation. It's an invitation to new creation where the Spirit of God hovers again and where we pray breathtaking prayers. Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit. Transform chaos. If you did it here, Lord, can you do it here? And will you continue to bring new creation, new hope, and new life? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.